whole universe is magnetic. Nobody likes to talk about it. And the reason why they don't like to talk about it is because they can't answer any questions on it. <laughs> the Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance, the professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global, with the courage to become the change the world needs. I hope you're excited about this conversation. I know I am. Today we're meeting with Advance Awards Science and Technology Category Finalist, Professor Brian Gainsler. Brian is an award-winning astronomer and author who is internationally recognised for his groundbreaking work on dying stars, interstellar magnets and cosmic explosions. His popular astronomy book, Extreme Cosmos, was published worldwide in 2012, revealing Brian's passion for understanding the universe. Like the rest of us, Brian is fascinated by the ways in which celestial objects change, flicker, flare and explode. But as the director of the Dunlap Institute, Brian takes it a step further. He aims to develop new approaches to astronomy through innovative hardware and software, to train the next generation of astronomers and to foster public engagement in science. Not to mention aiming to uncover why the universe is magnetic. He's a former Young Australian of the Year, a NASA Hubble Fellow and a Harvard Professor, he was also a National Laureate Fellow at the University of Sydney and was the founding director of the Centre of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Here's Professor Brian Gainsler. Professor Brian Gainsler, I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, I'm interested with the number of things that you're involved with and the perspective that you've got internationally. Just interested to start the conversation by asking, what's top of mind for you right here, right now? Astronomically speaking, I guess the thing that's top of mind for me is why is the universe magnetic? It's a very simple question to ask and it turns out the answer is really hard and I've been working on it for 20 years and making very slow progress. But yeah, the thing on my mind is why is the universe magnetic? So why is that the question you're particularly fascinated by? I've always loved magnets. Like as a kid, I had a little magnet kit and it was just so so cool that like there was something that can reach out and pull something else like invisibly. There's like no strings between it, it somehow pulls on it. It seems like magic. And it turns out that this is happening in space as well. Like galaxies can actually tug on other galaxies with their magnetism. And mm -hmm. nobody knows where this magnetism comes from. And if you buy a book on astronomy, it will tell you all these things about the universe and how it was formed and where it's going and about the big bang. And I'll never even mention magnetism. So it just seems remarkable. The whole universe is magnetic. Nobody likes to talk about it. And the reason why they don't like to talk about it is because they can't answer any questions on it. <laughs> I like that. They don't want to talk about it because they don't know the answers to it. That's interesting. So is there a big yeah, community so of scientists who are pursuing an answer to this? Or are you uh, kind of a trailblazer out on your own on this? It, it's a pretty small community. And what, the other thing I like is that it's a very collegial community. So it's, it's not a huge number of people, but... Um, but we all, um, work, it's not very competitive. We all work very closely together and we share our data and pull our ideas. Uh, and I really like working in this sort of big extended family of colleagues and friends from all around the world, all trying to nut out the same difficult question. 
I'm interested you mentioned that you had a childhood magnet kit because I was wondering, you know, given you spent your life in astronomy, whether you spent a lot of your childhood stargazing too, where did the kind of space element come in or did it all start with the magnets? No, I, that the space, the space preceded the magnets. So um, I, I sort of was an early reader and I think my parents used that as an opportunity to shut me up because I had so many questions by giving me books. And so I, I had books on, kids' books on volcanoes and race cars and dinosaurs and all those sorts of things. And I liked those books uh, and I liked them because they explained everything. But then they got me this book on astronomy. It's, it's a book I still have called The Album of Astronomy. And that book was different. Instead of saying, here's how this works, here's how that worked, this book said, we, we don't know anything. Like, what is going on up there? We can't explain any of the things that we see. And that just knocked me over. As a kid, I thought that pretty much anything you could think of, my parents would know the answer to. And if for <laughs> some reason, some reason they didn't know the answer, then, you know, my teacher would know the answer. And if my teacher didn't know the answer, then the answer would be in a library or an encyclopedia, or it would be in somebody's head somewhere in the world. You just had to find the right person. And this book said, there are things that nobody in the world knows the answer to. You could ask every person in the world and you will not be able to get the answer that you want. And that just shocked me, the idea that there were things that people did not know. And then later in the book, it says, and there are people who are actually trying to figure this out. And they're, they're called astronomers. And the idea that, there, that there, is, there were things that we didn't know and that there are people whose job it is to figure them out. I just thought, oh my goodness, that's, that's what I want to do. So... I decided at about the age of five that I wanted to be an astronomer. I wanted to solve all the great mysteries that were set out in this book. And that's pretty much was my single-minded focus ever since. I have, a, um, I have a cartoon that was drawn at the Sydney Royal Easter Show. I must have been seven or eight. And we're at the Easter Show. And uh, there was like, you know, Carnival Alley. And there was someone who was drawing like cartoons or, or caricatures of you for five bucks. And I mm -hmm. begged my parents to get a caricature and, and I sat down and the, the artist, she asked me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an astronomer. And she drew me uh, as an astronomer. And I still have that, that picture today oh, no of way. me as like a, like a seven-year-old looking through a telescope. So that's pretty much all I ever wanted to do. Um, and I, I consider myself very fortunate that I am doing what I always wanted. And I also think it's a big responsibility now that I have to help create paths so that other kids who want to be astronomers or scientists get to do that too. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. How, how much of a pathway is there into astronomy? Is it a challenging career to make a pathway in? There's, there's a lot of prep work that you have to do. Like if you say, I just want to look at stars. I just want to see beautiful pictures of galaxies and nebulae. Well, you can do that in your backyard. But if you want to do it professionally, then there's years and years of study. And it has to be on stuff that isn't related to pretty glowing nebulae. You have to learn physics and mathematics and computer science and all of these things that that are really just means to an end. So there's years of theory and preparation and training before you can actually get to the good stuff. So it's a pretty long haul. Um, in Australia, you're talking about eight years of university. Uh, in, in other countries, it's, it's even longer because there are masters and longer PhDs. So you might be talking 10 to 12 years. So Australia is relatively short, it's only, only eight. And then as a career, it's difficult because most positions initially are short term, they're just two or three years and they can be anywhere in the world. So you have to sort of pick up and move to some random country for a few years. And then at the end of that, you have to do it again. And it might be several moves before you get a job that's actually long-term. So it involves 
changing countries, which which isn't something that everybody can do. And uh, it involves, you know, a lot of sacrifice and, and long hours until you get a, a more stable sort of point in your life where you can plan ahead and buy a home and, and all the rest of it. So I feel like in what you've described so far, I'm thinking, you know, you definitely need to be insatiably curious. You need to be doggedly persistent and you need to be pretty adaptable to pick up life and go where the opportunities are. What else does it take to be a really good astronomer? I think it takes a lot of guts. Um, if you want to make a discovery, if you point your telescope at a random star, it's probably not going to be a very interesting star. And neither is the one after that or the one after that or the one after that. So discoveries, I was going to say discoveries don't land in your lap. They do land in your lap, <laughs> but only, only, after, only after you have had years of preparation to recognize something interesting. Um, so you have to really know what you're looking for. You have to know a huge amount because I can look at a star and I can either say, no, that doesn't look interesting. Or I can say, wait a minute, I remember reading about this like five years ago and I think that's actually exciting. So you have to be really well prepared. Like this is an expression, you know, that I'm, I'm very lucky and the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, uh, a lot of making a discovery in astronomy is really needle and a haystack stuff. And you really have to be ready and prepared and dogged and thorough. If you cut corners or uh, if you're not paying attention, you will miss something. And then six months later, someone else will announce a discovery. And you'll think, wait a minute, I looked at that picture and I didn't notice that. And there's nothing worse than realizing that it was in your lap and you didn't even realize. So, so you need a lot of patience, a, a lot of care, um, a lot of attention to detail and, and the ability to sort of the spidey sense to recognize when something isn't quite the way it should be. I love Spidey Sense. Now, you're an award-winning astronomer and you're recognised for your groundbreaking work on dying stars, interstellar magnets and cosmic explosions. I've got to admit, I'm not really sure what I've just said there other than thinking <laughs> that it sounds really cool. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what all that means? So stars don't live forever. They are burning fuel at a furious rate. and Eventually, they run out of fuel and they die. Now, if you're a wimpy star and the sun is a relatively wimpy star then when you run out of fuel you sort of just fizzle out like a match burning out but the really big stars when they run out of fuel they actually explode and the explosion is catastrophic it's called a supernova and uh the light from that star is bright more energy in, in, a, in a second comes out of that explosion than all the energy that that star has put out combined over millions and millions of years before that so wow. these are some of the most dramatic and catastrophic events in the universe. They sort of nicely sterilize uh, that an area many light years around them. So all, all, all any life that might be anywhere near that supernova is completely wiped out. And they, they essentially recharge the whole galaxy. This shockwave travels out as, at a significant fraction of the speed of light and it heats up and stirs up the gas and essentially keeps the galaxy chugging that it goes off and chugging along. So and like how common a phenomenon are they too? Uh, so in any given galaxy, they're pretty rare. So we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way. And on average, we think there's a supernova in our galaxy about once every 100 years. Okay. But we've been spectacularly unlucky in that on average, it's every 100 years. But we haven't seen one in our galaxy since 1604. And would you believe it, the telescope was invented in 1608. So <laughs> we haven't actually seen a supernova in our galaxy since the telescope wow. was invented. But there are a lot of galaxies out there. So if, if, if in every given galaxy, it takes 100 years for a supernova to go off, well, if you look at 100 galaxies, you're going to see one go off every year. If you look at 1,000 galaxies, you're going to see one go off every month. Well, we look at many more galaxies than that. So really, when you look at the whole sky, supernova explosions are like popcorn in the microwave. Um, and there are 
dozens of them discovered every single night somewhere in the universe. They're, Incredible. In the old days, it used to be a big deal when you found one. Now people just put out a summary once a month. Oh, by the way, here are all the supernova explosions we found in the last month. Um, and most of them are too far away to say much. But, but when they're nearby, you can study them in great detail. Uh, you can look at the damage they do to their environments. Um, the, one of the really interesting things is that a lot of the universe is invisible gas, just, just like the air, the air in the room. You can't see it. Um, and uh, if you want to see what the air in the room is doing, you might, for example, blow some smoke and then you can actually, the smoke will trace the motions of the air and it will tell you whether the air is still or whether it's swirling around. So it's the same in, in, the, in, in outer space. You can't see all that invisible gas, but if you blow up a huge explosion into it, mm. then that, that debris smashes into all the invisible gas and lights it up. And you can actually map out what all that invisible gas looks like. So you learn a lot about the structure of, of gas throughout the universe when one of these supernova explosions goes off. And the other really exciting thing is, is that the whole star doesn't always completely blow up. Uh, often there's a core of the star is left over. And these are very unusual objects. Uh, they're objects like neutron stars. Uh, and neutron stars are some of the densest objects in the universe. One teaspoon of a neutron star weighs about the same as 2000 Sydney Harbour bridges. Whoa. Um, so you can imagine lifting up a spoon that weighs 2,000 Sydney Harbour bridges. And then sometimes these supernova explosions leave something even more strange, these objects called black holes that everyone has, has heard of. Uh, strongest gravity in the universe, if you get too close to them, uh, you get sucked in and, and you cannot escape. So these are remarkable, amazing objects. They, they basically almost break the laws of physics. So they're fantastic laboratories uh, to actually explore physics. Like you can do lots of interesting experiments on a tabletop, uh, mm -hmm. but you can do even cooler experiments by studying the behavior of these neutron stars and black holes. Fascinating. I absolutely love that. And one of the things I've read about you and your work is that you're aiming to bring some new approaches into astronomy. What does that look like? What are you hoping new approaches will bring to the forum? What, what are you exploring the potential of? So one way of summarizing what we're trying to do is essentially trying to bring the idea of fisheye lens technology more into astronomy. So if you think of, you know, what, what's the most powerful telescope that's ever been built? And, and most people would suggest the Hubble Space Telescope. And they'd be absolutely right. The Hubble Space Telescope can see more distant, fainter stars in more detail than any other telescope ever built. It's, it's amazing. It's completely transformed astronomy. But what I, I like to say is, all right, so Hubble Space Telescope is awesome. Surely it can do anything. Why don't we ask the Hubble Space Telescope to take a picture of the moon? You know, surely, surely this billion-dollar telescope can take a picture of the moon. And it turns out that it can't uh, because the Hubble Space Telescope has a tiny, tiny field of view. It could take a fantastic picture of one crater on the moon, but it doesn't have a wide enough field of view to look at the whole moon. And then if you go out in the night sky and look at the full moon, it's actually really, really small. I mean, you can cover up the entire full moon with, with the, the fingernail on your pinky. It's tiny. <laughs> So imagine you want to look at a, a region that's much bigger than the full moon, like a whole swath of the sky. Um, you really can't do that in much detail. I mean, you, you can get like a nice professional camera from a camera shop and set up a telephoto lens and do an exposure. You can get a nice picture. You can see them on the internet. But if you want to look at the level of detail that astronomers like to look, it, it turns out that you really need a whole new type of technology. And so uh, one of the ideas that, that you know, I'm trying to push is, is the idea of what we call wide field astronomy, where you build super advanced Hubble Space Telescope telescopes, but with fisheye lens type views. And now you can see huge swaths of the sky. And that's great for finding something like a supernova, because if I'm looking for a supernova, if I use a Hubble Space Telescope, 
again, the chances of finding it are very low because I'm looking at a tiny, tiny patch of the sky. So the chances of a supernova going off while I'm looking at it are really low. And maybe a supernova will go off over there and I'll move the telescope over there and then one will go over there and I've missed that one too. But by looking at a huge patch of the sky at once, you get not just one, but many supernovae going off in your field and you can study them. The problem with these wide fields of view is that they, they generate enormous amounts of data. You know, in the old days, we'd have a, a phone or a camera that might generate images when you take a photo that were like three megabyte images. And now when I take a, a good picture with my phone, it's like 50 megabytes and they're just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So some of the photos that we can take with these fisheye lenses are now hundreds of gigabytes each. So you take 10 photos and you've filled up your hard drive. Mm. Um, uh, and But imagine you want to take 100 photos of the sky and you want to do that once an hour for a year. So you can imagine the size of the files that you're talking. They're just they're not hard drives big enough to store all these data sets. So you have to come up with algorithms that, that look at the images as they come off the telescope and essentially look at it and decide in real time automatically if there's anything interesting there. And if not, throw it away. And if there mm -hmm. is, well, don't keep the whole image. It's too big. Just keep the little patches of the image where there's something interesting. And you know, once you've thrown it away, it's gone. You can never get it back. So you, you better make the right decision. So we've moved beyond you know, a needle in a haystack to sort of needle in a thousand haystacks. And then you've only got 10 seconds after you arrive at the haystack to decide whether to burn the whole stake, haystack down or keep it on. So uh, it involves really big hard drives and very fast computers trying to make smart decisions without any human intervention. Because in the old days, you'd come in, you'd come in, in the you let the telescope run overnight, you'd come in the morning mm -hmm. and you'd sort of look through the images one by one and say, yeah, I like that one, not that one. Oh, that one looks interesting. You just can't do that anymore. There's just too many images to look at. Uh, so it all has to be automated. And so a lot of the work we're doing now is not actually looking at the images themselves, but writing the algorithms that will, will look at the images. So it's become a lot more about artificial intelligence and computer science and, and coding than it is about necessarily looking at pretty pictures. That's so interesting. And I know you're not just pioneering new approaches. You're very passionate too about bringing a diversity, pushing for diversity of people in the astronomy field. How diverse is astronomy? And what are you doing to try and break down barriers to get more diverse voices and perspectives in? Um, astronomy is not very diverse. I, I think it's, it's uh, a very white male culture. So for example, in my department, we're, about, we're, we're actually considered pretty good in terms of the fraction of women that we have. And we're about 30% women, and that's considered high. Now, of course, women are the majority, 51% of the population are women, and we only have 30%. So that's, that's almost a factor of two lower. And then it's, it's super white, so we just need to do more work to, to make our, you know, when I'm riding the, the train to, well, when I used to go to work, I'd be riding the train to work. And <laughs> back in I'd the day. And all the faces, I, yeah, back in the, the good old days, and I'd look at all the faces on the train, and, you know, Toronto, like, you know, Sydney and Melbourne is a very diverse multicultural city and there'd be faces from, uh, of, 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 of different colours from all around the world on the train and that just looks nothing like my corridor. So, you know, all I ask is that astronomy, the field of astronomy should look like, you know, the people on the train or the people on the bus or the people at the beach. Uh, I don't think that's the big ask. Um, and, and I think there's two reasons for that. One is, is that, you know, the more different types of views and uh, trajectories you have, the more chance you have of having a genuinely new idea. I mean, when I have an idea, it's not an idea that comes directly from a textbook into my brain. It's shaped by all of my life experiences, every single thing, all the classes I've taken, the things that happened to me as a child, you know, the music I like, the food I like, all of that 
you know, contributes in some complicated way to that, that spark. And if there are lots of people who had similar upbringings and lifestyles to me, then they're probably going to come up with similar ideas. But for someone who grew up in a completely different pathway, they're probably going to come up with a different way of solving, solving the problem. So I think firstly, if, if you want to make good discoveries, then you just need lots of different people trying to work on the, on the problem. And then the other thing, reason why I think it's important is because when I was five, I decided I wanted to be an astronomer. And I was told, and I believed, and it turned out to be true, that if I did everything I was told to do, then I would become an astronomer. Yeah, it's not going to be easy, but if you take these courses and you go to this university and you do this, then eventually if you jump through all of these hoops, yes, you can become an astronomer. So I followed the instructions on the packet. I followed them to the T and I got to become an astronomer. And, I, and you know, that made me think, yeah, that's that's if you want to live your dreams, that's all you have to do. You just have to follow the instructions and you have to stick with it. You have to have a lot of determination. Turns out there's lots of people out there um, who have all, who have done all those things and they followed the instructions and they did everything that I did. And yet there was some gatekeeper at some point who said, no, no, we're not accepting your application or no, we don't want you or you're not good enough. And that, that's just, to me, it's just unacceptable. I cannot imagine what it would have been like if I had been told by somebody like, you know, we don't want you. And yet that happens all the time to people who are black or brown. And so that's, that's just not fair. I mean, if you want to be an astronomer when you're five and that's what you want to do, then you should get to be an astronomer. And so I just think it's totally unacceptable that, that there are people just like me as five-year-olds who don't get to be me now. So what do you think will make a difference in that regard? You know, you, you, this is a challenge that's facing so many aspects of, um, of business decision-making, leadership across all facets of society. And people are looking at, you know, is it a challenge of we haven't got enough people taking up the courses that give us the throughput into the system? Is it bias that's inherent in our selection process and hiring? What do you think needs to be tackled to make a meaningful difference? Well, I think it's all those things. I mean, I, th I think that you have to work on building the pipeline. So one of the things that, uh, that we do in our department is we work with high school kids uh, from, uh, from marginalised backgrounds who are perhaps thinking about careers in science, but who don't have great grades and maybe aren't getting teachers telling them that they can be all they can be. And we sort of take them under, under our wing over the summer break. And we, we expose them to science and, and try and build confidence and try and tell them what are the actual steps that they need to take. So those are kids in high school. When it comes to the university, I think we really have to recognise that a lot of people have absorbed the feeling that they're not good enough and that they don't belong. And you have to tell them that, yes, they do belong. And you also, there are people like me who had influential, wise mentors who told me which which people, you know, oh, I have a friend that works at the university. You should talk to them and they can give you advice. And, you know, oh, I have this colleague overseas that you can ask about applying for jobs. I had this whole network that sort of came with, you know, my middle-class upbringing that helped me at every step of the way. And a lot of these people don't have that network. So mm -hmm. you have to be their network. Um, you have to say, look, you know, um, here's this job that's advertised. I think you should apply for it. They say, oh, I'm not good enough to apply for that job. I say, absolutely you are. And they say, well, I don't even know what to say. Like it's asking for this, this you know, statement of interest. What does that even mean? And, I, and then I say, well, I, I'm going to show you. Like I'm going to teach you how to write this and you're going to write it and I'm going to give you feedback. So a, a lot of people, there's the whole toolkit that some people gradually accumulate over decades and others were just never given this toolkit and they have to figure it out for themselves. And so it's really up to us to sort of say, all right, it's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and thinking that you should be able to figure this out for yourself. It's about me sitting down and walking through with you and helping you understand how the system works. And then when it comes to us looking for jobs, I think it's really about 
working very hard on, on what you said on, on bias and mm-hmm. trying to focus on the merit of the person and on the barriers they've overcome and on their potential and not on, you know, which university they went to or how many famous professors have written reference letters for them and all that sort of stuff. And so I think that that whole combination of strategies about building the pipeline, giving people skills, and then trying to hire people fairly, I think that those sorts of things start to really make a difference in terms of um, uh, just making our, our department a, a more interesting place where there are people from many different walks of life, all united by a passion for trying to understand the universe. I love that piece around you have to be their network um, in the sense of I think sometimes we talk about these sorts of issues as though it's someone else's responsibility. And I think that's a great nugget in there that each and every one of us can be intentional around who are we being the network for, who are we being that supportive hand through the system for, how are we helping break down barriers for others? Um, I I think that's fantastic encouragement. You mentioned mentors in what you talked about there. I did want to ask you, what uh, alongside mentors has been really pivotal to your personal success? What have you relied on? What's been key um, in navigating your career today? Uh, well, I think mentoring has been a huge part of it. There's been like half a dozen people who have just a particular core of people who've just always been there and, you know, to, to help me out and to give me a pep talk or to give me advice. Uh, and those people have been hugely influential uh, for many, many years. Then, of course, there's my, my family, like my, my parents and, and now my, my wife and son who, who understand uh, and tolerate, um, you know, the, the, the fact that astronomers often have to work at night and that involves a lot of, well, in the before times, it involved a lot of travel. And obviously, we've, I've moved my family um, from, from continent to continent several times. And so, you know, I, I think that you, you can't really do this on your own. Your, your family have to be supportive of what you do because it's it's not for, you know that the reality about astronomy is it's in some ways it's a job but in some ways it's not a job you know I, I don't you know I try not to work crazy hours but you know I'm still thinking about problems after five o'clock because they're problems that excite me and so my wife sometimes makes me keep keep a notepad by the bed so when I wake up at one o'clock in the morning um you've got I, somewhere I, to put I, those um, ideas <laughs> I, I can write it down so I, I you know I don't want to wake her up in the middle of the night so I write in the dark and so sometimes in the morning I can read my handwriting and sometimes I can't but you know a, a family understands that you, you're you're basically like a, a mad hobbyist you know there are people who who do bird watching or who collect stamps or whatever and you know I, I actually get paid for my hobby so um you know it's I, I think a supportive family who understands that you've found something that you really love and you just cannot stop thinking about it is um a key part of being able to pursue a life as a scientist Absolutely. Brian, I wanted to finish our conversation by asking you, you know, we've covered a wide array of topics. It's been fascinating hearing about your work and your career to date. And I'm looking forward to following your progress as you quest for this next frontier of scientific breakthrough. For those listening to our conversation, what would you encourage them to go and do in order to be a better leader or to be more impactful in the work that they're, that they're focused on? Um, I guess I'd say two things. I'd say that there is absolutely no substitute for guts. My hero growing up was was the cricketer Alan Border because mm-hmm. you know the Australian cricket team in the early eighties was hopeless, but there was this one guy who just would not take no for an answer, and like you know other teams could not get him out. He wasn't beautiful or stylish; he just got the job done. And uh, so I think there's a lot to be said for determination and guts. Like it, it obviously it helps if you're really smart, and it helps if you're prepared to work really hard, but that the thing that will get you there is guts. Like, you know, the, 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 you, know, the, you know, the clown, the inflatable clown and you knock mm-hmm. it over and it just bounces back up again. That, that's what you have to be. Like you've got, you've got to be able to be able to get up off the ground and just not give up. 
So I think I think that's that's a key part of of success. And then I think the other thing in terms of leadership is you have to be able to listen to people. Being a leader or or inspiring other people is about listening to them. And it's great if you can give an inspiring oratory or you're good at writing emails, but you've just got to listen to people and and really listen. And that that's something that I still am learning how to do. I'm a lot better at it than I used to be. And I I think that if people can understand that you care about them and that you want to understand their perspective, then that can go a long way in building strong teams. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but the smartest thing I ever did in my career was during my PhD, I took a job as a tour guide at Sydney Observatory. I was just doing it for the money. I just, I was a broke student and I needed a job that paid and talking about astronomy seemed like an easy path. But when you have to present like every night of the week to like feral hyperactive scouts or to, um, <laughs> to a, 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 a retirement home excursion or every night was different um, or just a bunch of, of families, you had to learn to communicate. So I was a terrible communicator until I worked at Sydney Observatory for many years. And that just was the forge that turned me and many other young astronomers into people that could explain what they're doing because it was sink or swim. Like the audience was, Truly. was there and, and, you know, they'd paid money for this and they were going to complain to your boss if you didn't deliver. So you just had to learn to be able to explain things and to think on your feet. Like if it was raining, you had to tell them stories. And if they point to a star and say, what's that star? You know, you need to know. So that, that was uh, another crucial I didn't realize at the time what a smart choice I was making, but becoming a tool guide was was incredibly helpful because all the skills you, you know, when, when you've got some astronomer in the audience at a conference who thinks that you've made a mistake in your calculation and they're sort of pressing you on it in front of 200 other people, that's nothing compared to some, you know, cub that wants to know what happens when you throw their sister into a black hole. I love that. No substitute for guts and listen intently, as well as that reminder and encouragement to be the network for other people. Professor Brian Gansler, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for your time and for everything you've shared. Thanks a lot, Holly. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.